0: Of the day, John chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 23. Yesterday, I don't know if you read the Anderson Star, but I do. And um, I was there yesterday reading in the faith section on the back page of the faith section. I cut cut the article out from the Los Angeles uh, Times. This is what it reads. President Obama said, I'm particularly blessed and welcome you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, for this Easter breakfast, he told the clergy. I wanted to join you for a brief moment today to continue the Easter celebration of our risen Savior and to reflect on the work to which He promised his promise calls all of us. The young man from Nazareth marched through Jerusalem, object of scorn and derision and abuse and torture by an empire. The agony of crucifixion amid the crisis, uh, excuse me, the cries of thieves. The discovery, just three days later, that would forever alter our world. That the Son of Man was not to be found in His tomb. And that Jesus Christ had risen. We are awed by the grace He has showed Even to those who who would have him killed. We are thankful for the sacrifice he gave for the sins of humanity. And we glory in the promise of redemption in the resurrection. He continues. Such a promise is one of life's great blessings. Because as I am continually learning, we are each of us imperfect. Each of us errs by accident or by design. Each of us falls short of how we ought to live. And selfishness and pride are vices that afflict us all. It is not easy to purge these afflictions to achieve redemption. But as Christians, we believe that redemption can be delivered by faith in Jesus Christ. And the possibility of redemption can make straight the crookedness of a character, make whole the incompleteness of a soul, Redemption makes life, however fleeting here on earth, resound with eternal hope. Tremendous commentary on the event, the singular event of history, which changed the world. 2,000 years, 20 centuries have passed. And the most powerful man in the world recognizes the resurrection of Jesus Christ. However you disagree with him on politics, however you disagree with him or want to argue about whether he is a man of faith, by his own words, he has said that this one event changed the world. And on this, we can all agree. All of us. No matter our political stripe, our preferences, nor our thoughts about the president. On this we agree. This one event that we're going to talk about today changed everything. Changed everything. And it's recorded for us in the Gospels. Every Gospel writer records the account of the resurrection. Now, I want to call your attention to some things, okay? Uh, some his, history here. In the 1800s, higher criticism. Higher criticism is the work of those who, as um, theologians or literary um, students especially, take a text and begin to tear it to pieces, looking and analyzing that text by the criteria of academics to understand what does the text really say, who said it, is it valid, is it now a real uh, uh, representation of what was written originally? Has it been altered through the years? Higher criticism, though I don't agree with the higher critics, higher criticism can be very helpful to us. As a matter of fact, I, I think that whether you agree with them and their conclusions or not, it's, it's, a, it's wrong-headed to simply ignore them. I think the church tried to ignore them and has tried in some sectors, And it is cause for great problems. There were great thinkers of what I'm saying in the 1800s who began to dissect the text of the Scripture to see what it really teaches us. And although there is uh, varying degrees of confidence in the text, one thing that we do see, even from the opponents of a literal word of God, is that most of them agree that what we read around the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ is eyewitness material? In all of their study, the one thing they cannot overturn, it seems, is that whether we agree this to be authoritative or not, this was an eyewitness account to events that they believe to have happened. That's crucial. Here's why it's crucial. I want you to think with me. It's easy in the 1800s to go back and rewrite history. But I have one question for the higher critic. One question for you concerning this. If we have, and I believe we do, eyewitness accounts recorded for us and passed down through the history, all that was necessary to stop Christianity in its tracks, All that was necessary to end the followers of Christ's argument that he is the Son of God. All that's necessary is one thing. A body. All the Romans have to do when this cult, as they thought of it, this sect of Judaism began to teach that there was a resurrection. All they had to do was go to the tomb. Produce a body. All the Jews had to do, whose whole life was hanging in the balance, all they had to do, lay him out unshrouded so that everyone might see him and identify that he's dead. So the question I have for you, if you don't believe in the resurrection, is why did they not do it? It would have been easy enough to do. They knew where his tomb was. All they had to do was produce a body. The whole thing's over. You see, the resurrection, the resurrection is the crux of Christianity. If the resurrection did not happen, then we need to close the word of God and go home. It's over. It's finished. There's no hope. Live for yourself and for your family and do the very best you can do. But please don't bore me with a history that happened 2,000 plus years ago, 8,000 years ago maybe in the Old Testament. Don't bore me with those details. I'll live my life to myself. It's interesting that since the 1800s and, and near the end of the 1900s, the 20th century, a shift happened. There's still higher critics. There's still those who want to debate the facts. Now, most people don't even want to deal with the facts. They're what we call postmoderns. Okay, so the resurrection happened, they say. What does that matter to me? That might help you, brother, but it doesn't help me. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not saying it's not true. I don't even want to talk about the facts. I don't even want to look at the history. I, I just, I just ignore it. I, I'm just neutral. You can deny it, but you cannot remain neutral. Because the Bible takes us before an empty tomb with eyewitnesses and demands a verdict from you. Demands that you say today, whether you believe it or you disbelieve it. But please do not pass by and say, oh, it doesn't matter that much. What's for supper? It can be... Either that he is the Lord or that he is the world's greatest liar. But it cannot be that he is a good man that we just ignore and say, Ah, oh, he's a good philosopher. Brilliant person. That option is not available. And so today's evidence is what I believe to be the crux of our faith. If we look at some of the early eyewitnesses and their preaching, we see the change that the resurrection had on them. And I want you to hold your place. We're going to go to John 20 Don't misunderstand me. But the Bible itself is a great, great defense. Acts chapter 10. If we look at Acts chapter 10. If you hold your place in John 20 and turn to Acts chapter 10. I like to hear pages turning. I want you to see it. The way this event which changed the world impacted believers. Okay. Okay. Acts chapter 10, and we begin in verse 39. Peter preaching to the Gentiles. Look what he says. And we witness of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And we are witnesses of all that he did. Catch that. Eyewitness to it. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us Who have been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. We have here Peter's preaching to the Gentiles and he says, We are our witnesses, and secondly, We saw Him hanged on a tree and raised from the dead. You don't believe me? We ate and drank with Him. Why didn't somebody somebody raise up evidence then to stop this? The whole thing would be over. There was no evidence to raise up. Acts chapter 17. Flip with me to the Apostle Paul and his teaching on the resurrection in his sermons. What I'm telling you is... While you're turning there, what I'm telling you is, it's not that people believe that he died, and then years later, after all of those in his time died, begin to say he was raised from the dead. This is days after he was raised from the dead. This is within eight years of his death. Thousands of people knew that he had died. There were, there were, there were men and women throughout Judea and the Roman Empire who had seen him crucified. All they had to do was produce a body. They didn't wait hundreds of years to begin teaching a resurrection. It was immediate. And it became the crux, the very center of their teaching. Acts 17. Paul, on Mars Hill, the most elite men of his day in Athens, have gathered together to uh, hear Paul preach. In Acts 17, verses 30 and 31, look what he said. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent. Why does He command them to repent? Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by man whom He has appointed. And of this, He has given assurance to all people by raising Him from the dead. Paul said, you can think, I don't know what I'm talking about. But there is a man who will judge you at your death, and he was raised up by the power of God. And at this word, look what they did. They heard of the resurrection of the dead, and some mocked. See, what the higher critic wants us to believe is there was a bunch of ignorant people in Judea and in this ancient world who believed in resurrection. They weren't scientific like us. They were dumb dums A little short of a full stack. No. It was not popular to believe in resurrection, even in the day of our Lord. These men began to mock. Not that Jesus had died on the cross, not that he was the Son of God, but that anyone would dare believe that he was raised up from the dead. You see, it was the crux of their teaching. They didn't leave it out of any sermon. Jesus was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised from the dead. I I know we've looked at it this morning, we read it, 1 Corinthians 15, that great hymn of the ancient church, which we have for us recorded in Paul's writing. And look what he says, and I won't read it again. It's been read this morning, but look what he says. He raised him on the third day in keeping with the Scriptures, and he appeared to Peter and then the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still here. Some of them have died. What is he saying? You don't believe me? You think I'm a lunatic? You think I've drank the Kool Aid and I'm trying to fool you? Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. Now, I've laid it out there. Romans chapter 4. We won't go there, but Romans chapter 4 says he was raised up for our justification. It was the center of their theology, this resurrection. Now, you can say, yeah, but Carl, all these people were his friends. And they're telling this because they want us to believe. They want us to continue to follow. They were trying to wrestle power away from the Jewish structure or the Roman structure of their day. That's a cool theory. It falls deaf because this wasn't some little teaching that they taught. This cost them their life. You might get one crazy man to die for a false belief. Find me 500 people that will all agree on the same fact and then die, and it'd be a lie. Of their own doing. Of their own choosing. Nobody told them. Nobody told them that they had to believe it. Nobody made them die. Nobody. They didn't die as a group all at one time, as we've seen some who did, have done those things that are false prophets and false teachers, but they all died at one time. These people died systematically over 30 years' time, and they saw one another killed. Don't you think one of them would have stood up and said, wait a minute, this is all a hoax. It's a farce. It's not true. I'm not going to die like that. Peter was willing to go to Rome and die on a cross. Paul was willing to be beheaded for his beliefs. Matthew All of the disciples, as a matter of fact, John was boiled in oil and placed in Patmos. And they did this on one truth. Jesus Christ was raised up from the dead. They believed it. They believed it and they died for it. And all I'm telling you is you can't walk by that fact and act like it doesn't matter. It changed the whole world. It changed who we are. When you look at this tomb and you see it empty, you have to make the decision. Will you believe or will you deny? But you can't say, it doesn't matter. Now let's look at John chapter 20. Let's look at this eyewitness account. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the sermon title, the sovereign victor, the sovereign victor. The resurrection of Jesus is the evidence which requires belief. And I want us to see. John wants us to see the evidence. Now, we're going to walk through the text. First of all, we see that seeing is believing. Seeing is believing. In John chapter 20, verse 1, that on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. It was still dark. It was in that twilight moments. I saw it it this morning. Some of you see it on your way to work, you know, where things are still. The sun's coming. You haven't seen it. it. You can see it on the horizon. It's lighting up, and it's a little shadowy. That's the time she came. She didn't come alone. She brought at least four others with her. There were probably some other women associated. She wasn't by herself. She was not hallucinating. She was awake. She was walking. It was early in the morning. She was not drunk. She comes to the tomb. And she, standing a little ways away, she sees that the stone has been moved. stone has been moved. The stone was placed there at the request of the Jews because they feared that someone would steal his body and claim he was resurrected. Say they foresaw that somebody might do this. They anticipated it, and they placed Roman guards outside of it, sealed it with the Roman seal. It was it was a punishable act to roll that stone away. And yet, when she comes up, she doesn't see anything but a tomb gone. I mean, a stone rolled away from a tomb. She struck with horror. Verse two says she ran. She ran back and found Peter and found the disciple whom Jesus loved. I've said on other occasions, I believe this to be John. And said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Wait a minute. She was some crazy Middle Eastern woman that was hallucinating. Her first report should say he's resurrected. But her first report is not belief. Her first report is, somebody stole him. Kind of takes the bite out of the argument that they were just a little crazy, just a little mystical, just a little superstitious. She says the most logical thing that any human would expect. If you went in and your loved one was supposed to be in a casket, and the casket was open and you didn't see them, the most logical thing you could say is, Somebody stole the body. That's what she said. That was her first report. Because seeing brought belief for her. And I want to show that to you in the text. So we're going to continue here. They, Then Peter uh, and the disciple ran. Peter was old. The disciple was young. The disciple outran him. <laughs> they reached the tomb. And they... John stooped down and looked inside and seized the linen cloths. Now, when Jesus had resurrected Lazarus, he came out bound. Jesus didn't come out of the tomb bound. He came out free. He came out a victor over sin and Satan and death. He passed through the grave clothes because his body was no longer mortal. It was immortal. As Paul says, this mortal must be planted, and then the immortal body is resurrected. Jesus Christ has a body like but yet unlike ours now. He had a body just like ours. That body was planted in the tomb, and the seed was planted so that the immortal might be raised. He passed through the barriers of the clothes. Unlike other resurrections where they had to unwrap people, he just walked out. He was resurrected. John recorded his linen clothes there, I believe, to point to this. To point to the fact he's like us now, but not like us. He's like we will be when we place our faith in him and the the resurrection occurs. He's the first fruits, it says. So Mary... Believes they've stolen the body. Peter and John run to the tomb. John saw. I want to call your attention to that. Saw, because I said seeing is believing, right? Verse uh, 5 tells us when he stooped down, he saw the linen clothes line there. Now, when you read these English texts, you don't pick this up, but John very cleverly uses specific words for what he saw. He saw the word blepo in the Greek. He simply observed. Is what it says. He saw with his eyes. That the linen clothes were there. And there was no body. But then Peter runs past him. That's just like Peter isn't it? It's just like Peter. He, he's not stopping at the door. No fear for treading on holy ground. Peter runs straight into the tomb. He wants to see it. So that he might believe it. And that's what it says happened in verse 6. That Simon Peter came following him. And went into the tomb. And he saw the linen clothes lying here. Now, John uses a different word. He doesn't say he merely observed. He uses the word for seeing in the Greek which drives to our word theory or theorizes. It's interesting to me. John saw it, observed it, and made no conclusions. Peter ran in and knelt down and looks and begins to formulate an idea about what he's seeing. He wants to know and understand what is going on here. Something significant has happened. And then the text continues to record for us that once Peter had gone in, now John comes in to the tomb. And he saw and believed. Seeing is believing for these disciples. That word saw, a third word for the word, for the word we say saw. First he observed, Peter drew a theory about what he saw. And this word, or eo, means or means to see with understanding. And I say that because look at the next verse. They didn't understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead, and then the disciples went back to their homes. He saw with understanding. In other words, when he went there, he saw it and he immediately believed in a resurrection based on what he had seen. But he didn't yet understand the Scriptures. He's going to do that later. In other words, he didn't go there expecting to find a resurrected body. These disciples were not looking for Jesus to come back from the dead because the Old Testament said he would come back from the dead, clearly. It said it, but they didn't understand it. But when they saw, not just observed, not just drew a theory, but understood what they saw, they believed in their heart that he was raised from the dead. Do you see how John in his eyewitness account wants us, he's driving us to believe that the resurrection happened? Not based off of second-hand accounts, but based off his very own eyewitness account and what it did to him. He moved in this moment from simply observing to believing. He himself, I think if you stop John in the kingdom, in the fullness of the kingdom one day and ask him, what did it for you? What pushed you over the edge? I don't know, but I think he will say, I I believed in Jesus. I, I believed he was the son of God. But when he died, It caused crisis for me. Wouldn't it you? But then I was at the tomb. And I believed. Everything I had believed was called into question when he was crucified and was confirmed to me when his body wasn't in that tomb. He was battling with belief. Some of you are battling right now in your heart. You say, I want to believe it. I want to not dismiss this. I want to accept it. Be like John. See it and believe it. The resurrection demands it from you. It demands it from you. It changes the world. It changes us. It changes our faith. So we see that he's driving. The disciples didn't understand this from some point of Scripture in the Old Testament. They believed in the resurrection because they saw it. Secondly, in the text, we come face to face with a conversation that confirms commitment. A conversation that confirms commitment. It's interesting to me the way John records this. Matthew and Luke and Mark have their own place, and the way that they describe things is very important, and we're not going to run to and fro and get you all tangled up in that. Everything that we're reading here is verified by the other writers and everything they write is verified by what's written here. There's nothing to doubt in their eyewitness account. But I don't want to run all over the scriptures. I just want to stay here with you because look what John does. He paints this in scenes. He's given you scene one, which was seeing and believing. Now he's going to give you a conversation that confirms belief. And then he's going to say that seeing is receiving. Seeing is receiving. He's going to give you a third picture, and then he's going to give you a fourth picture. Do you see how hard he's driving that you believe? Believe. Believe it's shouting from the pages. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And why does he do this? Because the whole purpose of his letter is given to us in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And he's doing it with the resurrection. Here, some women saw. Here, Peter and John saw and they believed. Now we're going to read in just a moment and look through the text. A conversation happened which confirmed Mary and her belief. And then he appeared to the twelve disciples and they received from him the Spirit. And then we get the encounter with Thomas. And I've saved Thomas so he's by himself. I've saved Thomas. I think it's a significant event and we're going to have a sermon dedicated to that seeing and that confirming of faith next week. But here we see a conversation that confirms. Mary now has come back to the tomb. She got there after they were gone. She got there mourning, weeping, crying, distraught, distressed, discouraged. She knew what she believed. She knew she had washed this Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them clean with her hair. She knew that he had delivered her from a life of sin, prostitution, and adultery. She knew this Jesus, but he was gone. He was missing. And it caused her a crisis. Are you in a crisis of belief? You're not the first, and you won't be the last. And the same thing which confirmed their belief will be what Jesus uses to confirm your belief. It is, if I'm not who I said I am, find my body. Find my body. They're going to have a conversation about the body. Look what it says. She was standing there weeping at the tomb. And... Sitting there in the place where where the body of Jesus had been were men dressed in white angels who said, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Look at Mary. So sincere. All of her life she was this way, as far as we know, in the scriptures anyway, from the time she met Christ. Why does she want to go to her Lord? Because she knew they hurriedly prepared him for burial. And she wanted to do it the right way. She wanted to honor Jesus. She wanted even in his death for him to be treated as a king. And she was going to do her job to take care of him. She's sincere, but she's in crisis. And she's asking, I don't know where his body is. And having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing. Now, I said earlier, he's like us now, but he's not like us. And I I really do believe that. He does still look like Jesus, but he's glorified. There's a a difference now. She doesn't immediately recognize it. Notice again that she's not expecting to see Jesus standing up, talking. Still, the critics have a tough time answering that. If she's simply hallucinating, why didn't she immediately say, there's Jesus, because she doesn't expect to see him in the garden. She's looking for him dead, and he's not dead. So she said, he says to her, woman, a term of affection. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? He had asked the Roman soldiers that in his arrest, and now he asks Mary that after his resurrection. Remember I said, he said, whom are you seeking? And when they asked him, he said, I am, and they fell back in fear. He asks again, doesn't he? Who are you seeking? Same question. Look what she says. She thought he was a gardener. Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you laid him, and I will take him. Who are you looking for, Mary? I'm looking for my Lord. I want my Lord to be cared for. Please tell me, where is he that I might care for him? Sincere, but in conflict. And then Jesus says one word. He calls her name. She doesn't shrink back in fear. Like the soldiers. She fell at his feet. Crying at his feet. Again, we we find Mary there a lot, don't we? I wish we were more like Mary. I wish I was more like Mary. Seeing is believing. This conversation confirmed belief for Mary. Mary, at this moment falls down and calls him teacher. I mean, don't you, I mean, I don't want to make this uh, too sentimental, but I couldn't help this week as I studied thinking, what will it be like to hear with my ears the Lord say my name? What will it be like? I mean, I'm going to see him like she saw him. And he's going to call my name. A name is so important in the Eastern world. A name was everything. It was who you were. Jesus, I believe John is saying, Jesus identified her where she was in that conflict of belief and confirmed her faith with simply calling her name. He doesn't fuss at her about her lack of faith. He says, Mary. And in that moment, when she heard her name, she fell in worship. People talk about what I'm going to do when I get to heaven. Let me tell you something. Whether I meet him there after death or he resurrects the new body for me here in the coming, I will worship him. I don't know any other way to respond to seeing your Lord. I mean, we're going to worship him. This conversation confirmed her belief. Confirmed her belief. And she says in verse 18, I have seen the Lord. Same word John used earlier. A derivative of that same word is being used again. She saw with understanding. She believed. He's driving this point to us. I'm writing these things that you will believe that he is Jesus, the Son of God. And believing you might be saved. I believed when I saw Mary believed when she saw. And that's a report. And finally, we see in the close here that Jesus appeared to the disciples. And I've called this seeing is receiving. Seeing is receiving. The first encounter was seeing so that you might believe, and this encounter is seeing so that you might receive. It's it's interesting to me. Jesus' body is like ours and unlike ours. It's not mortal. It's immortal. Look at what he does. The disciples. John's being very clear. The door is closed. Not only is the door closed, the door is locked. Nobody can come in. They're afraid of the Jews. They're afraid that as the word spreads about his resurrection, there's going to be a a bloodletting, a genocide to shut them up. They're afraid. And Jesus doesn't open the door. He doesn't knock on the door. He just walks in. His body is like ours, but it's not like ours. He doesn't have a mortal body anymore. He is immortal. He walked in. He's standing in their presence. I mean, by his words, I understand how they responded. Much like we would have responded, right? If we're in a locked room, and it's just us, and we're already afraid that we're going to be hung on a cross, we're in our huddle. I believe they were praying, calling out to God for help and direction. They've seen, John has seen, bore witness, Mary Magdalene seen, bore witness. Now they're at night. And they, they, this news is spreading fast across the countryside. And they're, they're in a moment here where they're thinking, what's going to happen? And then through the door walks Jesus. They were scared out of their minds. They were scared to death. Look what he said, peace be with you. In other words, I know you're afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's me. It's me. You see, he wasn't spiritually raised from the dead. He was physically raised from the dead. He ate with them and he drank with them. Some people will say, oh, I believe in the resurrection. Jesus' spirit was raised up and it's with us now. No, his body was raised up. His spirit did not die. It did not need resurrection. His spirit at the cross was handed back to his father. His spirit didn't die. His spirit couldn't die. If his spirit dies, then God dies. If God dies, then he's not God. If God dies, the whole thing falls to pieces. Right? Jesus, Jesus the man, died. He's the God-man. His God, his divinity, did not die. I don't want to go too far and uh, take another hour to explain that. Maybe that's good for another sermon. But I'm not trying to make him two separate beings in one body. He's one, but yet in such a way that he doesn't do violence to his character as God, the unchanging God. His flesh died. His humanity died. His humanity suffered and died. And his spirit went back to heaven with his father In his crucifixion and didn't need resurrection, but his body needed to be resurrected. And his body was resurrected and now has walked into the room with the disciples. And he says, peace to you. Now, Jesus then commissions them. As the father sent me, so I send you. And I didn't send you alone. But look what he does. This is why I said, seeing is receiving. He then breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. They received there the promise which he had made to them earlier in the upper room when he said, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will send the Spirit to you that where you are, he will be with you. He's fulfilling his promise. He's giving them the Holy Spirit. And in the middle of this is a crisis of faith. In the middle of this, we have men, not unlike us in any way, fallen and struggling to believe. And they're given one evidence that is indisputable. And I would propose to you that you may want to deny it but I know that really you cannot deny it and that is his resurrection notice with me lost man woman in this room you can debate with me about a lot of things you can disagree with me on doctrine going and coming but when we get to the resurrection you've either got to say I believe it happened and therefore I believe he is who he said he is Or you've got to say, I don't believe it happened. You cannot say anything other than those two. And what I'm telling you is today's the day to make that choice, to make that decision firm in your mind. Some would say it's crazy. It's insane. It's checking the mind at the door to believe in a resurrection. Well, I think it's insane to deny the facts of history. The eyewitnesses who saw him. The 500 who went through the countryside after they saw him all at one time. I mean, if you got 500 independent witnesses, some of them, they might get together and talk. But when 500 people see the same thing, I mean, if one person saw you do what you did, then it's confirmed. If 500 saw it, it's beyond dispute. That's what the Bible tells us. So either you've got to deny him or you've got to accept him. You can't leave him there. You can't leave him there. I want you to believe. I can't make you. But I want to urge you. Believe. Don't walk by the tomb. And remain unchanged. Let's pray. Father, you overwhelm us.